All right, hey, thanks for being here. My name's Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith Racing, and it's always a privilege to be at the racetrack. Let me pray. Lord, thanks so much for the day. Thanks for the opportunity to be here at a racetrack. Do what you've given us to do, what you've put in our hearts to do. But right now, we want to quiet ourselves, and we just ask you to meet us here in this place. Give me the words to say. Uh, show us your ways, Lord. Show us your holiness. Show us your plan for our lives, and, uh, and use me in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years ago, actually, I hate to admit this, but a couple decades ago, I was in the Army. Uh, I actually uh, had gone to college for a little bit. I got really bored of college. I don't know why, because I sit there in a classroom all day. And I said, forget this, I'm joining the Army. So I, uh, I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia. I told the recruiter, I'm going to be infantry. That's it, man. I'm not taking anything else. Infantry is it. I go to Fort Benning, Georgia. I go through basic. I go through advanced infantry school. Because I had a little bit of college behind me, they gave me these, these, this chevron on my collar. I, I was an E2. I was a private, like a buck private. If you're nothing in the Army, you're an E1, and you don't get anything on your collar. Man, I actually had this one stripe on my collar. I was a, I was a private. It was nothing, and I knew it. Got out, of, uh, got out of advanced infantry school, I went home, I bought a truck, and I drove it down to Texas for my first duty station. I roll into Fort Hood, Texas, my first day on base, my first minute on base, I made it about a quarter of a mile on base, and I got pulled over by an MP. Now, anytime you get pulled over, the police will tell you that they ask you, do you know why I pulled you over, sir? And you always, they, they say, we know that you know why we pulled you over. So the MP asked me, he says, do you know why I pulled you over? I'm brand new at this, man. I'm scared. This guy, he outranks me. I told him the truth. I said, no, Sergeant, I do not know why you pulled me over. I did not, I had no clue why he pulled me over. He looked at me very sternly. He said, because you ran that yellow light. I was like, are you kidding me? I ran a yellow light? He's like, yes. I mean, I kind of lost some of my military bearing there. I was like, are you serious? He's like, yes, you had time to stop. I said, I had time to go. <laughs> Isn't that what yellow means? He said, no, but I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. I was like, because you can't, because I didn't break the law. You broke the spirit of the law. All righty then. So from that moment on, I was not fond of MPs. <laughs> Until we got out and we did several field exercises, and I learned late, it took me not too long to figure out that the MPs, they were really good at pulling guard duty. So I hope there's no MPs here. Uh, we, we ended up making peace, not that guy, but I ended up making peace with the MPs because I understood their role was out in the field. They're really good at it. And Garrison, some of them are just power tripping, hungry. Uh, you know, I don't even know how to explain it. I was pretty hot at that time. But, um, you know, isn't that how sometimes we approach the Old Testament? Isn't that how some people admit it? Well, we don't want to admit this, but there are people that, we, that think that God is a power-tripping God. Matter of fact, 2006, a Richard Dawkins, he's, he's what's known as a new atheist. He's an atheist. He wrote a book, and, uh, and in it he called God a moral monster. And, uh, and, and he, he called us that, uh, you know, we're offended by that. When we hear Richard Dawkins say things like that, we're offended. But at the same time, we're kind of curious because there is that passage in the Old Testament where God has all these laws that he lays out and all these rules, the do's and the don'ts and the these and the thou's. And we don't really understand that. So we know that God is good. But then when you read some of these rules and you hear people accuse us of, you Christians, you're just a bunch of hypocrites, man. You pick and choose what you want out of the Bible. You say that homosexuality is a sin, but you do nothing to address the other sins in that same passage like 
wearing clothing of mixed fabric, like wool and linen, that's against the law. You don't say anything about, uh, you know, tattoos. Christians these days, you have lots of tattoos. But that's against the law in the same passage in Leviticus. Why aren't you talking about that? What about uh, Leviticus 19.27 says, You shall not mar or trim the edges of your beard. You guys just pick and choose what you want, you bunch of hypocrites. Is that a fair point? Not hardly. But how do you approach that? What do you do about that? That's why we're going through the ages and through the pages, all right? 66 different books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years in the making, the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. This is what we're studying this year on GNCC. We started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, five rounds ago, and we're working our way in 13 messages. We're going to work our way and conclude in Revelation by the end of this year at Iron Man. And so week number one, we, we looked at uh, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was perfect. God had order in it. Matter of fact, everything was so perfect that there was only one option to do anything bad. And what did we do? What did Adam and Eve do? They did the one option to do anything bad. And that actually inverted creation completely. Now, it seems like every option we have is bad. Every option that we have is apart from God. There's only one option to do good. And that's through Jesus Christ. You see, we were created for relationship. We had relationship. One option would destroy that relationship. We did it. Now we're born into sin. And there's only one option to restore that relationship, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're getting through the ages and through the pages. We're working towards that, but how did God bring that to us? Week number two, we studied a big fancy word here, Abrahamic covenant. God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to reveal myself to the whole world. I'm going to use you to do it. You're going to be a father of a great nation, lots of people, lots of land. The whole world is going to be blessed through you, a three-part covenant. And so Abraham had a son. That son had two sons. One of those sons had 12 sons. Became, later became the 12 tribes of Israel. But before they were a tribe, before they were 12 tribes, they were just a family, about 80 people. And there was a famine in the land. And they had to go to Egypt. And through God's providence and the story of Joseph, Joseph was already in Egypt and he saved the family. Saved the family not just from starvation, but from extinction. Because if they had stayed in the land of Canaan, they would have been absorbed by the Canaanites. They wouldn't have been a family anymore. There would have been no nation. But God brought them into the land of Goshen, and he insulated them there. And there they grew, and they grew, and they multiplied, and sons and daughters and grandchildren, until the 80-people family became thousands upon thousands. Part number one, God said, a great nation, lots of people. And then comes lots of land. And so last week... We looked at the story of Moses and how Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Matter of fact, if you didn't catch it last week, it's worth going back on iTunes or, or SoundCloud and catching the story of the Passover. How that original Passover there in Egypt related directly to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. How John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then according to the custom of Passover, all the lambs, all the spotless lambs, had to be brought into Jerusalem on day number one of Passover. Day number one of Passover, almost 2,000 years ago, in comes Jesus. And the people totally missed it. Matter of fact, even modern day Christians, we miss it. That Jesus, that spotless lamb coming in, not just Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but thousands of spotless lambs coming into Jerusalem. And so Moses leads the people out of, out of Egypt. He leads them across, through the Red Sea, and the, and the waves crash in to destroy, destroy Pharaoh's army. And the Israelites, they are free. They are free indeed. They're headed to the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up to this evening. As the Israelites, they go to, uh, they, they, they're headed towards that, that, uh, that land of promise. God's promise, his three-part promise is in motion. 
We see that there's thousands of people. Now we're headed to the land. They go through the Red Sea. They're headed there. Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon of the, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. A new moon happens every 29 and a half days. So on the third new moon, that's three months from them be exiting Egypt, they come to the wilderness of Sinai. And God tells Moses, come up to the top of the mountain. He says to Moses, he says, I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now tell this to the people. If you will indeed obey the sound of my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, knowing what we know now, (laughs) that God made himself known to the Israelites and from them brought forth his very own son, Jesus, this statement makes a lot of sense. The (laughs) The promise is already here. We see it. Jesus, the blessing to the entire world. We see how this all plays out. But back then, 3,500 years ago, we're getting glimpses that God's in action. We see the lots of people check, land on our way, blessing for the whole world. Well, stop, hold on a second. I got a few things to say right here at Mount Sinai. And God gives Moses the law. And you remember the story. You maybe even have watched the 1956 movie with Charlton Heston. I never watched it, but I know the story because I read the book. How Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, all right, Moses, here's a few things. I'm going to write this down. My own finger going to carve this into the tablet. I'm going to tell this to you. Moses is gone for a really long time. The people are like, man, what what happened to that Moses fellow, man? He must have gotten swallowed up. I mean, God got rid of him. We got to make some way on our own. Let's make a golden calf and we'll worship the calf. And Moses comes down to that mountain and he's got the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God had carved with his very own hand. He sees what's going on. Moses loses his cool. He smashes the tablets on the ground, says, you, what are y'all doing? And then, of course, Moses has to go back up the mountain and say, hey, you know, those tablets that you gave me, I kind of lost them. <laughs> Can you redo them? And God's like, yeah, I kind of know what's going on here. I'll be happy to redo them. Moses comes down out of the mountain, and he's got these tablets with the law inscribed on them by the hand of God. And we know them, the Big Ten, right? Don't, uh, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I know here in, in this country we're very concerned that we have the Ten Commandments posted on our, on our public walls and our courthouses and so forth. I'm concerned with that, but I'm more concerned that we, even as Christians, that we would follow those Ten Commandments. It's actually offensive to me that we take the name of the Lord so lightly. I'm concerned with this to the point that I won't even type in a text message, I won't even type OMG, because it stands for, oh my God. God said, don't take my name lightly. Don't take my name in vain. It means to use it senselessly. Like, that's a holy name. And I think we need to come back to that. We're not bound by law. We're not, we're not forced to follow these Ten Commandments. I'm going to get into that in a little bit later. But they're great guidelines. And if you view God as holy, and you view those Ten Commandments as holy and important, that's a good place to start right there. There's other ones. The Sabbath day, remember it, keep it holy. Honor your parents, kids. That's like in the top five. Honor your parents. You know who I'm looking at. Trevor. <laughs> My own son. All of you kids, honor your parents. Is in the Big Ten. And then, of course, we've got, we got those other ones. Uh, don't murder, steal, lie, commit adultery, and don't covet. But along with those Big Ten came 603 other commandments that Moses passed on to the people. And that's where we get confused. Okay, because some of these commandments are kind of strange. Listen to them. Don't plant a field with two kinds of seeds. 
Don't eat shellfish. You don't eat pork or eagles or owls. You can eat grasshoppers. You can eat locusts, but don't eat an eagle. If someone has leprosy, he must cover his upper lip. We already mentioned no tattoos, no mixed fabric in the clothing with wool and linen. Don't trim the edges of your beard. And let's not even talk about animal sacrifices, right? Because, I mean, blood, everything's about blood in the Old Testament, which, which part in part led Richard Dawkins, when he wrote The God Delusion in 2006, to make a statement that God was a moral monster. As a matter of fact, what Richard Dawkins wrote was, he says, and I quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, according to him, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, I can't even pronounce these words, a polystial, melomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I practiced that ten times. I nailed it until right now. I'm like, this guy, he really went at it with the thesaurus here because he's got a beef with God. It's weird. Total side note here. If you don't believe in Santa Claus, do you get mad at people that do? Why is it that people get mad at me for believing in God? If there is no God, why are you so upset about it? And I'll tell you the reason. Because there is a God, and if there is a God, there is a Satan. And there is, as we learn in the New Testament, he is the ruler of this world. Hearts and minds are darkened. And that allows me to have a little bit of patience, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of love. A lot of prayer for both me and for the people that need Jesus. Back on track here. Since then, since Richard Dawkins wrote his book in 2006, there have been many books that have followed. And it has become the norm. It's been common to point fingers at Christians and saying, you hypocrites, or more accurately, you intolerant jerks. And they point to these really weird Old Testament rules. And they say, number one, how can you believe in a God who would impose these stupid restrictions on people? And secondly, if he is real, then why would you want to follow him? And let me tell you, I'm not here to defend God because God doesn't need me to defend him. I'm just here to put some of this into context for you. We're already seeing that God has a plan and a purpose. He said he's going to make a great nation. He's going to reveal himself to that special creation through that nation in order that he may bless the entire world. So the great nation, here are 613 do's and don'ts that God passes on through Moses. I want you to abide in order to have my plan come to fruition. Now, have you ever heard that the Old Testament points to Jesus? I've heard all my life, the Old Testament points to Jesus. Do you know what that means? I had no clue. I had no clue until I started learning how to read the Bible through the ages and through the pages and see how God has been at work from the very beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, when he, when he said, after Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit, the curse of sin came on the world and God told the serpent, you are going to have enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. You are going to bruise his heel. He will bruise your head. And we know 2,000 years this side of the cross, we see how that plainly played out. But this story of through the ages and through the pages is starting to make it all make sense. How every step of the way, God has had a plan. He's had a purpose. So I'm going to fast forward real quick to Jesus. When he was on this earth, Preached a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 17, it's recorded that Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
It's interesting that Jesus would say the law and the prophets, because we know what the law is. That's that list of do's and don'ts, and we know what prophets are. Prophets were the spokespeople for God. Matter of fact, a part of the prophet's job description was that they would often foretell the future and, and coming events that would eventually happen. So when Jesus says, don't think that I came to get rid of the do's and don'ts or to ignore the teachings of the prophets, I actually came to make these things come to pass. And then Jesus doubled down on the law. He said, you heard, don't commit murder. But I say, if you're angry in your heart, it's the same difference. Don't commit adultery. And yet you've all looked at somebody with lust in your heart. In that statement, though, Jesus pointed out that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in essence, he pointed out that all of us, myself included, have broken the law. And those that pretend that they haven't, the Pharisees, they aren't getting to heaven either. And here's what's most confusing about Jesus' statement. As we read this and we're on this side of the cross, what's most confusing about Jesus' statement is that he said, I came to fulfill the law. He didn't say, I came to do the law. I understand that. If Jesus said, hey, I came to do what y'all couldn't do, I came to do those 613 things that you couldn't do, I would understand that. By the way, Jesus did exactly that. He was accused of breaking the law by the Pharisees, but by the time Jesus was on this earth, the, uh, the 613 laws had been expanded. The, the Pharisees had decided that, hey, we're gonna, in order to not break the law, we're going to make other rules that insulate these laws. It happens even to this day. I was watching a video, uh, a lady from oneforisrael.org. I was watching a video from her, and she is a modern-day Jew, a Messianic Jew. She believes that Jesus was the Messiah. And she explained as part of her presentation that even in modern-day Judaism, it is breaking the law to tear toilet paper on the Sabbath. She didn't explain what you're supposed to do, <laughs> but knowing what I understand of the law, all work was supposed to have been done on Friday so that you didn't have any work. Like if you needed wood for a fire, you're supposed to gather it on Friday so that you don't have to work on Saturday. So in other words, have all your preparations made. And that's how ridiculous the law got. In Jesus' day, it was against the law that on a Sabbath day, if you needed to move a chair, you needed to pick it up and move it. Because if you drug it, that's digging furrows in the ground, and that's plowing, and you're working, and you're breaking the law. So that's the level of insanity that Jesus was dealing with. When he came to this earth, though, he might have broke man's law, because they, they actually made a law, a new law, when Jesus was on the scene. Their law was, thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath. That's working. They never had to make that law before, you know, because it never happened before. But here's this Jesus fellow. We don't know what to do with him, but surely that's got to be against the law. Jesus never worked on the Sabbath. He never broke a single one of those 613 laws. So, back to our text here. If Jesus had said, hey, I came not to do away with the law. I came to do it. I would understand that. But he said, no, I came to fulfill it. This statement makes sense only when you look at the prophets. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill what the prophets said about me. Now we're starting to understand it. In context, we know that Jesus was the completion of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing to the whole earth. So I want to take just a second. I want to look at what the early church leader and the apostle Paul had to say about Jesus and the law. And I'm going to go to Galatians. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. And I'm going to read to you from the message translation. This is what it says. It says, the purpose of the law was to keep a sinful people in the way of salvation until Christ, the descendant, came. 
Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar, Paul says, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children really get to the place that they set out for. Eugene Peterson, who is the translator of the message version, he explains that a tutor was not an educator, but rather a watcher, a bodyguard, a, a babysitter. Okay, common, to our, common practice in the first century was for the wealthy to have servants or slaves and for one of them to be assigned to the child, very similar to a nanny today, but the main function was to get the children to school without being kidnapped. Now, if you go back to 2004, there was a movie by Denzel Washington called Man on Fire. Anybody remember it? Man on Fire, uh, Denzel Washington played a washed up CIA agent who was having some personal problems, but he was, he was, pretty, he was pretty tough. And so he was able to, he was hired to be a bodyguard for nine-year-old girl living in Mexico City with her family. There were a lot of kidnappings going on. The nine-year-old was played by Dakota Fanning and Denzel Washington, this really super tough CIA agent, ex-CIA agent, he would escort her to school every day and he would bring her home to make sure that she didn't get kidnapped. That's the exact picture of what Paul is painting right here. That was the law. The law was Agent Creasy making sure that Dakota Fanning got to, uh, got to school all right. In an amazing twist in that movie, she got kidnapped. I hate to blow it for you. But then Denzel Washington had to go knock some heads, and you know, it all turns out okay, so I hate that I had to ruin that movie for you, but you wouldn't have seen that coming, I'm sure. Back on track here. If you think of this, the law was a tutor like that. I think a more modern-day analogy that Paul would use today is the law is a guardrail. The law is a set of guardrails that keep you on track so that you get to your destination. The thing with guardrails is you can go left and you can go right, but eventually you hit that guardrail and you're going to bounce off of it, hopefully, and you're going to be back on track so that you get to your destination. Now, understanding that, it's, it's a lot easier to, to get the concept of the law. When, uh, when Jordan Ashburn and his dad and I went to Japan a few years ago for the JNCC, Jordan was racing it, we went out and we walked the course the day before. And we found out that they lay their courses out a little bit differently than the way we do here. They don't use arrows, they use banners to mark off the edges of the track. On one side, they use a blue banner. On the other side, they use a red banner. As long as you stay between those banners, you're on the course. You can go anywhere you want. Sometimes those banners are 20 yards apart. Other times they're 100 yards apart and you can't see one banner from the other, but you are free to go anywhere that you want to in, within. The, there's not even a trail in some sections of a JNCC race. You just go where you want as long as you don't go through a banner. Now you've got a picture of how the law operated. Let me put this back in context for you, okay? That's the law. Let's see how it works. 1,500 years before Jesus, was the Mount Sinai, the, the Mosaic Law, 613 laws. They were designed to keep the Israelites on track for God's ultimate destination, which was Jesus, and the blessing to the entire earth. Today, we can break the law down into three different categories, okay? There's civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Civil law is simply having to do with public health, social justice, governance. Ceremonial law is meant to explain God's holiness, versus our unholiness and our unworthiness. The moral law is simply God's character. A reflection of God's character is right versus wrong. 
Now, the civil law, when you look at civil law, it's pretty easy because we have law today. We have civil law. We have public health codes. We have building codes that work for, for us today. Some of our laws are exactly the same laws that God introduced to the nation of Israel 1,500 years before Jesus. For example, Exodus 21 says, A man digs a pit and does not cover it, and someone's ox or donkey falls into it. The man who dug the pit now owes the cost of an ox or donkey. This is exactly why we have homeowner's insurance with a liability rider, okay? If I dig a pit and my neighbor's donkey wanders onto my property and falls into that hole that I dug that I didn't cover up, I'm liable for that donkey. And my homeowner's insurance will pay out for that donkey. Same law that God gave to Israel 3,500 years ago. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet or a railing around your roof in order that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Houses back then had a flat roof. People would go and they would gather on the roof. They would sleep on the roof on cool nights. If you build a new house, you have to put a railing around it. What's our building code say today? If you have a porch that's more than 30 inches off the ground, you have to have a railing around it. In Canada, it's 24 inches. If you have a porch 24 inches off the ground, you have to have a, just like, just like our roof right here has a railing all the way around it. Actually kind of makes sense now. Other civil laws have to do with, uh, with, uh, with health issues. Leprosy. If, you, if a person has leprosy, they have, to, they have to cover their upper lip. What is that all about? The term leprosy covered all kinds of skin diseases, not just leprosy. They didn't know how to diagnose leprosy from many other skin diseases. As we've seen in the news here recently, measles is an airborne virus. Measles is coming back in this country. How's it spread by the air? You cover your mouth when you have a skin disease? Oh, now oh, it's just it's a, it's a mask to catch the germs. We didn't know that until just about 100 years ago. Other, other laws that God has that he gave to Israel that people don't understand is like, okay, if somebody's bleeding and they sit on a chair, you're not allowed to sit on that chair. What is that all about? Man, because that's how disease spreads. We didn't know that until just a few hundred years ago that we understand sterilization procedures and, and cleaning yourself before doing surgery on a patient and not wearing the same clothing from patient to patient. And here it is, 3,500 years ago, God was onto something, almost as if he knew what he was doing, huh? We've got social justice issues. Don't mistreat a sojourner, somebody that's passing through, because you were a sojourner in Egypt. Don't mistreat a widow or an orphan in the same passage. Immigration. If someone desires to live in Israel and they're willing to assimilate, they come in peace, let them in by all means. That's Leviticus 19.34. There are some other things that are not so easy to understand. Slavery. There are laws concerning slavery in the Old Testament, and we think, oh man, slavery, how could you possibly, God, how could you possibly allow slavery? Here's one passage I'll explain to you just briefly. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 says that, talks about that when you go to war and you see a beautiful woman, a beautiful young woman, and you capture her and you want to make her your wife, then you need to bring her home and you shave her head and you take away all of her uh, original clothing, give her normal clothing to wear, and she lives in your house for 30 days unmolested. And at the end of 30 days, if you still want to marry her, then you're allowed to marry her. And we think, man, God, that's awful. You're allowing captivity and enslavement and slavery. I mean, how, how could you possibly? When was the context of this? This is 3,500 years ago. The ancient Near East was a brutal, brutal, brutal place. Rape and pillage was just the norm. And, and here we've got God saying, okay, so 
if this is how it's going to operate, here's the rules that you're going to abide by. You want to make that woman your wife, you've captured her. First of all, you're going to take away her beauty because you're not going to be fixated on her physical attributes. You're going to take away her physical beauty. You're going to live with her for 30 days, leaving her alone. And at the end of 30 days, if you want to make her your wife, then you will. And you will treat her accordingly. If you no longer want her to be your wife, you are to release her and not sell her for money. Actually providing some level of protection. You see, as we go through all these Old Testament rules, we're finding out that, the, that they're very different from the rules that other nations live by. We all studied the Code of Hammurabi in, in high school. Uh, Code of Hammurabi uh, from 1750 BC, just about 250 years removed from, from this time period. Uh, if, uh, if you caught a thief, the thief was to be killed. Other offenses in Code of Hammurabi cost a, a hand, an ear, a tongue, a nose. The Mosaic Law required restitution. The Mosaic Law was the only ancient code that placed more emphasis on people than property. Now, the law did have some offenses that allowed for a trial before a judge, and the punishment could be 40 lashes, which sounds terrible, but the Egyptian law allowed 200 lashes, up to 200 lashes, and didn't provide for a, uh, a trial in front of a judge. God's law required a trial in front of a judge. On to uh, some of our other laws, like ceremonial law. You can eat a cow, you can eat a sheep, a goat, but not a pig or a horse. All right, this is kind of kind of strange, but uh, God says on the on the land animals, split hoof and they chew the cud, you can eat. You can eat fish as long as they have fins and scales. That means you can't eat a crab, you can't eat a shrimp. Uh, you can eat chicken, but you can't eat an owl. What is the deal with these food laws? Well, let me ask you something here. At the very beginning of time in, in creation, everything was perfect, right? There was no death until Sin entered the world, and then death entered by sin. These food laws are pointing back, they're reflecting back to God's original order in order that God can drive the nation of Israel to say, I have a plan and a purpose. I'm going to restore that order of creation. I'm going to restore that level of perfection. Therefore, you're not going to eat an animal that eats other animals. You're not going to eat animals that feed off the bottom. What do pigs eat? Anything and everything, including dead bodies, if you let them. You're not going to eat that. You're going to eat a cow, you're going to eat a sheep, you're going to eat a goat. So every single day, distinctly different from the people around them, these laws are setting Israel apart, separate, distinct. The other ceremonial laws, no tattoos. Tattoos at that time were part of a death cult of the nations around them. It was a way of communicating with the dead. The same with don't trim your beard, because as is explained in Leviticus 19, through Deuteronomy 14, and Leviticus 21, that trimming your beard has to do with communicating with the dead. So there's actually a legitimate way that the nations around them had these weird superstitions and these weird cultures in which they would do some things. And God says, no, you're not going to be a part of that. Matter of fact, you're not going to intermarry with those people. You're not going to make their gods your gods because you're not going to be absorbed by those nations. You're my special creation. I have a plan. I have a purpose. We're moving forward to the fulfillment of the promise that I made to Abraham. And I'm going to make sure that you stay intact as a nation, guardrails, to get to that final destination. Moral law, the moral law that God laid down never changed because right is right and wrong is wrong and God explained it back then. The right versus wrong, you know, don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, 
don't, uh, don't commit adultery. Wrong is wrong. And God laid out a whole host of sexual sins that we're supposed to stay away from. All of those things have been reinforced in, in the New Testament. All those things continue to be reinforced in modern time because God is God and His character. His character has never changed. And so, and so now we're seeing that as time marches on and through the ages and through the pages, as God has been moving His nation of Israel... We're going to get into a time when, when Israel, they go towards the guardrail and they blow right through the guardrail and God raises up a judge and he brings them back on track and then they go this way and they blow through this guardrail and God raises up a king and he brings them back and then there's pro- a prophet and then there's many prophets and we're going to find, but all along the way, God's law is guiding Israel towards a final destination and that destination was Jesus. And I am so thankful that we are no longer bound by that law, but instead, instead we can call on the name of Jesus. You see, back in in Old Testament law, a lot of the law had to do with uh, ceremonial laws regarding sacrifice. And, And explaining the holiness of God versus the unholiness of man. And we today, in 2019, it seems like we have lost our respect for God. And I think a big part of that is that none of us have ever had to have our hands covered in blood of an innocent animal that had to die in our place to atone for our sins. You see, back in the garden, God said, if you do this, you will surely die. They did it. They didn't die in that moment, but you know what did die? That animal. Because God said, he comes down, he says, where are you? Well, I don't have any clothes on. God says, all right, I'm gonna take care of that. He gives them animal skins. How did they get the animal skins? Something had to die. Since then, it's a reminder. Death has always been a reminder that sin has consequence. Matter of fact, sin has an eternal consequence of death. And so all through the Old Testament, you're seeing these sacrifices. What does it take to do a sacrifice? You get covered in blood. And it's a reminder that your sin has cost a life. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, first day of Passover, with all those thousands of sacrificial lambs. By the end of the week, he's hanging on a cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. And he hangs there and he dies. And he's the only person that ever lived that perfect life. And he dies. He is the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin of the entire world. And we know that he was the perfect sacrifice because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And it's by believing on Jesus, that we atone for our sins. We're no longer covered in the blood, physically covered in blood. And so sometimes we lose our respect for God, but when we understand through the ages and through the pages, the story of God marching on to the completion of the blessing for the entire world, it all starts to make sense. And it makes me rejoice that I've made Jesus my Lord and Savior. I have Bibles up here if you need them. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you had a plan from the very beginning. You knew we would mess up. You knew that in 2019 we would even mess up. But you had a plan to redeem us through your son, Jesus. Thank you so much. I love you, Lord. It's a pleasure to be out here on GNCC, to be the minister of the gospel. I pray anybody here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, you will give them the courage to come to me and make it right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great race. Thanks a lot for hanging out with me. It's a pleasure as always. Need anything? Come see me.